The word dramaturgy is unusual enough that my phone's autocorrect function changes it to dramaturgy. Even for theater makers, the concept is nebulous enough to prompt articles about it in major newspapers with headlines like, What the Bleep is a Dramaturg? In my dramaturgy classroom, I aim to demystify dramaturgy as an art form by recognizing that, as scholars and theater makers, we all already commit acts of dramaturgy regularly and enthusiastically. In my books, dramaturgy is an act of creation and more of a mindset than a set of rules, regulations, and duties. I'm Professor Molly Seremet, and it's such a thrill to welcome you back for season two of Writ in the Margins, a podcast that harnesses dramaturgical thinking as a performative act of creation. This podcast was conceptualized, researched, written, produced, and realized by the graduate students in the Shakespeare and Performance Program at Mary Baldwin University. For season two, we are bringing you 13 episodes that unpack, investigate, reimagine, and sometimes even push against five wildly different plays. El Muerto Dissimulado, or Presumed Dead, by Angela de Azevedo. The Antipodes, by Richard Broom. The Island Princess, by John Fletcher. Loa to the Divine Narcissus, by Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. And Life is a Dream, by Pedro Calderón de la Barca. These plays sit alongside Shakespeare in the universe of early modern drama, but each has its own unique terrain and orbit. And each episode offers a close look at key features of the landscape from a dramaturgical perspective. In their research, students have deployed tools of structural analysis, contextual synthesis, and creative intervention, and have intermingled their research with performed scenes, original music, and special features galore. Feel free to listen to the episodes in this season in any order. I hope you'll also go back and revisit season one as well. Do visit our website for show notes, transcripts, and bibliographic materials. We appreciate the support of Mary Baldwin University's Shakespeare and Performance Program in this endeavor. Now that's enough for me. On to your episode of Writ in the Margins. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Writ in the Margins, a podcast that takes a dramaturgical approach to plays from the early modern period and beyond. This podcast is sponsored by Mary Baldwin's University's Shakespeare and Performance Master's Program in Stanton, Virginia, home to the American Shakespeare Center. I'm Liz Hayward. And I'm Sam Corey. If this is your first time listening to Writ in the Margins, welcome. We're so excited to dive into another dramaturgical rabbit hole with you. Sam, do you want to tell the listeners which play we're focusing on? Do I? (laughs) Listeners, this week's play is a farcical romance filled with mistaken identities, multiple love triangles, polygons, really, mischievous servants, and swashbuckling duels. Yes! A play about honor and love, written in the Spanish Golden Age and first performed in 1683. Have you lovely nerds guessed it yet? I bet some have. The play is Los Empeños de una Casa by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. In today's episode, we will take a deep dive into the ever-evolving text. There have been a few published English translations, but we're most interested in the 2005 version translated by the talented Dr. Catherine Boyle, 
Professor of Latin American Cultural Studies at King College, London. We're super excited to have Dr. Catherine Boyle on the show today, as well as dramaturg Dr. Kathleen Jeffs from Gonzaga University to talk about their experiences with House of Desires. Why this translation, Sam? Why not one of the others? Well, Liz, this translation reached a much wider audience than the others, and it remains the most often produced translation of Los Empeños de una Casa, or House of Desires, to this day. Ah, yes. I imagine it's so popular due to its attachment to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah, it was created for the RSC during their Spanish Golden Age season in 2004 at Stratford-upon-Avon. It was initially performed with four other plays in repertory by an ensemble of actors with the English title of House of Desires. It was directed by Nancy Meckler and the season's artistic director, Lawrence Boswell, wanted to give audiences translations, not adaptations. So the RSC hired academic consultants from Belfast, Oxford, and London universities. They exchanged a million emails, came together for a couple of meetings, and really sifted through most of the kind of recognizable titles from Spanish Golden Age plays that you would think of, and a lot of titles that are not so recognizable. That's Dr. Kathleen Jeffs, who was hired as a text consultant and dramaturg for the RSC Spanish Golden Age season. We'll hear more from her soon. But let's give the listeners a background on the play itself. In 1683... The playwright Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz was asked to write a play to be performed at the court in Mexico City in homage to the viceregal couple. Sor Juana wasn't your average Spanish Golden Age playwright. She was a woman, and it was unusual for a woman to be such a well-established and respected playwright in Mexico during the 17th century. So what allowed Sor Juana to stand out so much? Well, the clue lies in her name, Sor Juana which translates to Sister Juana, as in, she was a nun. Yes, she was a 17th century playwright that also happened to be a nun living in a convent. This was not a coincidence, though. No, it was not. Convents were the only way single women could continue their work or education. Being a nun allowed Sir Juana to continue her progressive writing commenting on the social, political, and economic landscape of Mexico in the 17th century, without the scrutiny of being a single, unmarried woman. Or having to marry. She had many suitors in her youth. She was very beautiful. There are several portraits of her online. But the main thing she wanted in life was to be left alone, to read books, and learn as much as she could. House of Desires is considered to be Sor Juana's masterpiece. It's a comedy full of smart female protagonists who endure the folly of ambitious men. (laughs) The plot involves Doña Leonor, a beautiful and educated woman, and her lover, Don Carlos. But when they are separated while eloping, Doña Leonor must take refuge in Don Pedro's house. And Don Pedro wishes to make Doña Leonor his lover. Another supporter of splitting up Leonor and Carlos is Don Pedro's sister, Doña Ana who fancies Don Carlos, but she is loved by Don Juan. Don't worry if all of this sounds confusing. It is, and it's intended to be. Throw in some scenes in the dark, the fantastically mischievous female servant Celia, and exciting cross-dressing scenes from the clownish servant Castaño, and you have House of Desires. That feels like a pretty good background. Yeah, Sam? Yeah, 
Shall we turn it over to the experts? Sure thing. We first spoke to Dr. Kathleen Jeffs and asked her to introduce herself in her own words. Okay, so I'm Kathleen Jeffs and I serve as the University Corps Director at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. And in 2003 through about 2005, um, I worked as a rehearsal dramaturg for the Royal Shakespeare Company's Spanish Golden Age season, which was kind of 03, 04, and then had some kind of after life um, after the season closed. And then um, after that, around 2008, I worked with Jonathan Thacker and Catherine Boyle and David Johnson on the Out of the Wings project, which is a Spanish theater translation project. And I was a postdoctoral researcher on that. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, we're so excited to have you and uh, talk to you about your work. Uh, so how did you begin working with the RSC for their Spanish Golden Age season? It's a fun story, as all these adventures are. Um, I was in the first year of uh, my master's at Oxford in the UK, and my supervisor there was Jonathan Thacker, and he's a wonderful person, and he's also a wonderful father. He has four boys, and his fourth boy was just being born at the time when the Royal Shakespeare Company called him and said, you know, we'd really love you to come and work in rehearsal on this season. He was like, dagnabbit, I can't, but I'll send you my graduate student. Um, so that's kind of how it got started is that I got to go kind of in his place and in communication with him a lot and with um, his colleague, Jack Sage. And so I was kind of a conduit between those proper researchers and I was only in my first year as a grad student. And then it kind of grew from there because it became a, um, a longer project and I kind of stayed in Oxford much longer than I had intended to, to keep working on the project and then um, ended up really enjoying it. But it started like everything does with happenstance. And uh, do you know why the Royal Shakespeare Company chose House of Desires? And did you have any role in choosing it? They went through what they called a virtual seminar, um, which is that Lawrence Boswell, who curated the season and was the kind of um, season's director, um, got together with some advisors and people that he trusted and that he'd worked before on curating a season at London's Gate Theatre in the 90s. And that was Catherine Boyle and his dramaturg, Paul Syrat there at the RSC, who'd worked with him before, David Johnston, who translated with him before, um, and Jonathan Packer. And they had this virtual seminar, meaning that they were emailing back and forth um, in kind of 2003, early parts of 2003, and then through to the decision-making time. And it had started before that because the season at the gate was really the impetus for it. And they'd work together um, during that time. So yeah, they exchanged a million emails, came together for a couple of meetings and really sifted through most of the kind of recognizable titles from Spanish Golden Age plays that you would think of and a lot of titles that are not so recognizable. They also wanted to kind of dig deep and look through plays that were untranslated or unperformed or kind of dig up that um, you know, mine for gold, if you will. And so um, Lawrence had kind of five criteria for selecting the plays. He wanted great plays um, that speak to us now. He also wanted them to be British premieres. Um, he was flexible on that. And obviously not all the plays that they ultimately chose were, you know, strictly premieres, but it was something he came in with. Like he wanted them to feel new and fresh. He wanted them to be not readily available in English translation. So not like, oh, how about this one that you pull off the shelf that everyone already knows? He also wanted plays with great parts for women. Obviously, House of Desires has um, Leonor and Doniana, which are two really great parts for women. And Celia, um, the, the servant girl, who I also think is a wonderful part. 
And the last one was kind of a variety, a diversity of genres. And so that's how they kind of ended up with like a biblical play, a mythological play, a comedy, a tragedy, um, and then kind of a farce or a parody, which is what House of Desires really is. So yeah, I think that the season selection process was like really in depth, really careful and wanted to come out with something that was um, diverse in genre, diverse in playwright and kind of spanning, you know, what they would consider the, the things that the Spanish Golden Age has to offer. Awesome. For House of Desires, you had mentioned that they were looking for plays that have maybe hadn't been translated from or into English yet. Um, but House of Desires, we found at least in our research that there uh, were two other um, translations before Catherine's. So was there anything in that process that made them think, hey, these translations are not what we want. We want like our own version or an updated version. Yeah, that's a great question. Peter Oswald's version had been on at Battersea Art Center just in 1997. So really within pretty recent memory of, of this production. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that um, translation at all, but I think the process was really to commission new translations for the season. So even if it was perfect and beautiful, I think they would have started again because they just wanted that to be part of what they were selling was like these new versions um, and really offering that. And also like just in that span of time, um, linguistically things change in any language and in the English language, if you read it, it's, it, everything dates really fast in translation. I mean, if you pick any translation off the shelf from any language, they always need to be updated and refreshed because if you want the plays to speak like, um, you know, in a heightened way, but still in a relevant way, it, almost every translator wants to refresh when they remount a show. When did Catherine Boyle get involved with you when she was working on her translation? What was your level of interaction with her? Yeah, thanks. Um, so Catherine is, so they're all, they're all friends. <laughs> like they all work together. Catherine Boyle and Jonathan Packer and, um, David Johnson and Lauren, Lawrence Boswell sort of had worked together and was kind of, you know, known each other before. And so I'd met Catherine through Jonathan as kind of another, another mentor, another person who could kind of help me along my journey as a, as a grad student, that sort of thing. Um, and then once I was working on the project, she was able to send me her early drafts, which I was really grateful for because I was studying the process and I kind of wanted to know more about what she was doing. Um, later on, sort of like 2008, um, we ended up working together on this Out of the Wings project, which she was the principal investigator for. So she was one of the main um, supervisors along with Jonathan and, um, and David. So I ended up working with her again later on that project, which was really cool because <laughs> she's an amazing person. That is so cool. Um, I remember Liz and I, what actually got us interested in looking into the translation of House of Desires in particular um, versus the other themes that we could have gone with for this podcast uh, was because when we were reading it, we we're like, huh, that sounds like a really modern English phrase uh, every once in a while. Uh, and it seemed to serve the play really well, but we were wondering how you landed on that. And, you know, did you talk to Catherine about that or was that a personal decision she had already made? Something that the um, all the translators considered was like leaving things like expletives or like, you know, the kind of, oh, no, those kinds of things that they say in Spanish, leaving those in Spanish so that there would be that kind of 
you know, not flavor, because that sounds <laughs> cheesy, but, but leaving some of the words in Spanish to let them speak for themselves, you know, and also to let the audiences who have both languages kind of feel that that part of it at least is being retained. And I think that's a really interesting idea um, because as Jack Sage, you know, pointed out, hearing them go like, my God, a million times or, you know, just and, and in English going Jesus all the time, like doesn't really, it doesn't carry the same way, um, you know, as, as, as those appeals do in the original. So definitely those like, oh my goodness, what's happening moments are really hard to translate. And so I think Catherine put in, you know, England, she's Scottish, right? So like coming up with like a kind of giving her voice as well to it, I think is what ended up working really well. So that it does, does sound like her in parts with it, which I love, but I think it, it makes it funnier when those cross-cultural things happen, you know, when, when a culture, when a character who is in, you know, Toledo is, is sounding very, suddenly very English or very Scottish or, you know, very British at least. Those kinds of things are part of the comedy when you're translating it into another language. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much, Kathleen, for speaking with us. Thank you, Sam, and thanks, Liz. I very much enjoyed meeting you guys and all the best wishes for you and your dramaturgy and dramaturgs can save the world. Yes, dramaturgs can save the world. Amazing that she got the opportunity to work as a dramaturg for the RSC Spanish Gold Age season just as a graduate student. Yeah, really incredible. She was so kind. I loved speaking with her. Um, she's currently working on actually translating The Force of Habit um, alongside Melissa Matchett. So you will find that information on our show notes page. Uh, you can also find Dr. Kathleen Jeff's book, uh, which is called Staging the Spanish Golden Age. Uh, that link is also on our show notes page. It's available for purchase and it details her experience working with the RSC. And now that we've heard from Kathleen, let's share our conversation with Dr. Catherine Boyle. Let's do it. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> Catherine, would you like to introduce yourself in your own words? My name is Catherine Boyle. I'm a professor of Latin American Cultural Studies at King's College London. And I've worked in theatre translation for a long time. And I run one of the things I run is the Out of the Wings Collective, which is a collective of people dedicated to the translation, the uh, performance and research into uh, theatre translation. In terms of the House of Desires and the Royal Shakespeare Company, that came about because um, the Royal Shakespeare Company got in touch with me and a couple of other academics to be part of a uh, a team of people who would construct the house, construct this um, season of golden age performances, and what they wanted to do with the direct with the artistic director of the season, Lawrence Boswell, was to uh, sort of co-create the season with um, with people who had knowledge about the golden age, with with, with researchers, um, and, and for them to get really what they considered was most representative and best about the drama that, they, that we knew about in the golden age. So that was the first, um, the first connection with the Royal Shakespeare Company for this season. 
um, as an academic and as somebody who had expertise in the Spanish Golden Age, and then particularly in the Spanish in the well, Spanish Golden Age in the Verticomas, as it related to uh, to New Spain, to Mexico, and especially, of course, Sor Juana, Ines La Cruz. We had actually the wonderful opportunity yesterday to talk to your friend, uh, Dr. Kathleen Jeff. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. She was, she, I got an email from her this morning. She was really <laughs> delighted. Yeah. She says hi and she sends her love. <laughs> um, right back out. And she also told us that you actually uh, did a literal translation before during the performance translation. So the first one wasn't, it was, it was a translation. I, I don't actually... Um, I don't agree with the concept of literal translations for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but it was a translation I'd done before, but, but that hadn't that I hadn't worked on for performance. And when they asked me to to send it, I hadn't worked on it for something like I must have been about 10, 12 years. So it was like picking it off the um, off my shelf in a way and and working with it again is what Kathleen is getting at is that the RSE wanted to use that as a literal for a dramatist to work from and their first um, goal their first intention was to have um, great dramatists great British dramatists doing the translation of the piece working from these um, original translations and that's not how it worked out in the end thankfully which I think was a, a, a real, uh, a bit of a coup, which was a real success, actually, of the Spanish Golden Age season, that we got beyond this undermining of what they would call literal translations, which is really just an undermining of, of the work of the translator. Um, so, yeah, so, so I mean, what, what the work, what my work was, really, was to go back to the translation I'd done a decade or more before and uh, and rethink it and the reason I did that was that the the um, the director Nancy Meckler had read that translation which was going to be used by someone else um, like the translation because it thought it got her very close to Sor Juana and to the sort of uh, Sor Juana's language and that and that's how using that translation came about. That's Exciting. I like that you were paying attention to the difference of Sor Juana's language versus, um, you know, what might have been the patriarchal um, language of the time, um, which kind of brings us to speaking about Sor Juana. Um, how did you feel about her and her plays before you worked with the RSC? And did that change at all, given the time that you had with House of Desires? Um, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, th I think part of it is the answer that I'd done the translation of this play, you know, 10, 12 years before that uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company um, came back to it, in a sense. And that was actually through a colleague of mine, um, Jack Sage, Professor Jack Sage, who was involved in the whole thing. And, and it was he who actually said, you know, put Sorwana. Uh, forward as as a possibility, which was great because I was going to as well. But in these sorts of circumstances, you need um, you need allies to make sure that these uh, forgotten female playwrights actually are are 
given some attention. Um, yeah, so I've loved and worked in Sorwana for a long, 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 long time now. And and I suppose working with the RSC, did it change? Um, yes and no. No, you know, in the sense that uh, I continued to love Sorwana. And yes, in the sense that I became even more entranced by her ability to speak to us now. And, and also by uh, by how performative the play was. You know, a lot of the criticism that you'll hear of the female writers in Spanish Golden Age was that they weren't writing the same sort of quality as the men. They were ventriloquists, they were plagiarizing, they were doing all this sort of thing. So that so you can, or, or they weren't following the form as as exquisitely or as um as robustly as uh, as Lope or Cervantes or Tirso or any of them then did. So what was really exciting was to see the play go through the dramaturgical process and come out and be loved by audiences. And I, and I think, if anything, it gave me an even greater uh, belief, actually, in Sorwana as somebody who can communicates across across the, the centuries. Well, how would you describe uh, Sir Juana's voice compared to the male writers? What kind of differences? I think um, she's much more subversive, which, you know, which is a, which is as silly in a way as, a, as an incredible generalization of her work. But I think um, she has more fun with the form. I think there's something in Sir Juana that um, I always thought, and I felt this in the performances, I feel as if she doesn't really care, you know, and I, and I love that, actually. She, she puts it all together and then she just pulls it all to pieces. And then in the very end, she just shoves it all together again. You know, the last scene is absolutely ridiculous, you know, and and, and quite a few of the female dramatists that I've translated now, you know, do the same thing, you know, um, the last scene is just, well, we've got to put this together because that's what people like once. But, you know, it doesn't make sense in many ways. And, you know, the fact that uh, Pedro's left without someone and actually who Pedro's left with is Castaño. You know, it's uh, it's really interesting. And I just felt as if she'd written it. She said, OK. And I really felt that she'd written it. She said, OK, now I've done that. Let's just do what we need to do and wrap it all up. And there's something joyful about that, actually. I think there's something incredible, yeah, just joyous about um, about being involved in that. And I think she lets you sit on the surface of that that uh, enjoyment and of the farce and of the mistaken identity and all of that and of the comedy. Um, and she lets you sit on that, but at the same time, what's happening underneath in in terms of what she's saying uh, is actually quite hard hitting so um and that's one of the things that i find quite um modern such a pointless word really but i find it quite modern because it allows us in you can recognize a lot wonderful thank you for sharing um while you were translating um both in the 90s and then uh, again in early 2000s with the rsc um, what was the most 
exciting aspect for you when translating House of Desires? I think it's, I think translating Sor Juana or any of these is, is both exciting and terrifying, you know, because you're, you're dealing with somebody who's, uh, well, she was a genius and her, her command of language, the depth of her knowledge and um, her ability to uh, improvise on, um, on ideas and illusion and the classics and mythology is, is just really overwhelming. But that's also what makes it incredibly exciting because it makes it into a process of, um, of research and discovery, of learning. And I felt as if I was constantly untangling it because she writes in this architectonic way, in a Baroque way, and you've got, you've got lines, you know, speeches that will go over pages and pages, and, you're just, and, and a lot of it is really unravelling. That's why I use the word unravelling. And, and as you unravel, you're making it, um, making sense of it. And then your job is to ravel it all up again. I don't know if the word, the verb to ravel exists, but you know, and you're putting it together again. Um, and that's incredibly exciting because you've, because it's, it's a part of the translation, which is about um, understanding or trying to access the modern ear. And a modern ear, which is not a Spanish ear or, or a Spanish language ear, but one that's an Anglophone ear. And I wanted people to have access to the complexities of her thinking with, without losing the access to her. So those are the sorts of decisions that I was um, making. The most important thing for me in the translation was that the uh, that you could that the actors could follow the breath of the of the speeches. And, and by that, they would find their own rhythms, where it speeds up, where it doesn't, and, and how, to, um, how to manage the lines. So I wasn't writing in, um, in verse, and I wasn't feel, following all of the verses that Sorwana was using, but I was really conscious of, of, um, of how she was punctuating, because she never punctuated in the way that, that we would, but how she was punctuating through breath and through um, syntax. And that's what I really wanted to get to, because I wanted the breath to be what was going to guide the, the actors. So that, so I mean, the, the the script in the end for me is sort of punctuated to within a, a breadth of its life, because I really wanted that to be part of the instruction to the actors, so that they could follow these different rhythms. And that I found really exciting. And I found it really exciting in the rehearsal room when you found that the actors were actually following that. We. Oui have House of Desires now exposed to us, I'm sure, because of your translation. Without it, I doubt that we would even be studying it in our dramaturgy class. So thank you. Well, I think that's great to know. I think that's really great to know. And I think it's really, that's been, like I say, that's been one of the wonderful things of having done it. Yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm just so delighted. I think it's, it's wonderful. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for speaking with us today. No, it's been good fun. Thank you. What a great conversation, Sam. I loved Catherine's connection to Swana. Me too, Liz. I could talk to her for hours. We, we almost did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Kathleen and Catherine for their time. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did and learning about the dramaturgical mysteries of translating a 17th century Spanish Golden Age play. If you're interested in more information about Catherine and Kathleen, Check out our show notes for links to all their fabulous work, including their Spanish theater translation project. 
out of the wings. And if you're interested in reading or performing House of Desires, we also included a link to Catherine's RSC translation. Thanks for tuning in, fellow nerds. Happy dramaturging! Thanks so much for listening to Written the Margins. On behalf of my awesome students, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. All opinions shared on this podcast belong to episode hosts and their special guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions of our places of work and study. Please check out our show website for more resources, including show notes and transcripts. Now don't be a drama turkey. Listen to another episode.